Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails podcast. Thanks for listening to the latest installment of the 1916 Rising Centenary miniseries special. I hope you've been enjoying it so far, and remember to send me your feedback and let me know what you're thinking of it. A small reminder, guys, When Diplomacy Fails is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, and the Agora Podcast Network is full of wonderful shows, just like When Diplomacy Fails, that will delight your earbuds, and delight your ears, and delight your brain, and fill you with information and knowledge that you had not had before. So I'd recommend searching for Agora in iTunes, Google, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts, and following on from there, you'll be able to find the actual feed for Agora itself, and also all the contingent parts and the different podcasters that make up Agora in general. In line with this, the month of June, because it's summer now, thankfully, 2016, is dedicated to the promotion of Chris Stewart and the History of China podcast. So, if you're in any way knowledgeable about China, you feel like you'd like to know some more about it, or you have no knowledge whatsoever on China, kind of like me, and you can't even pronounce the names, you don't know what dynasty is which, you don't know which empire was which, you don't know when the Mongols invaded, what that darn wall was even for, and whether it can be seen from space. It can't, that's a myth. You should definitely check out the History of China podcast. And check out Chris Stewart as well. Search them in Google, iTunes, you know, the usual. And enjoy. Okay, so with that out of the way, it's time to get started. So we're into episode 13 now, guys. I hope you enjoy it. Let's not waste any more time. Thanks for listening. In this episode, we examine the moment of surrender and the scenes of rebels marching off into captivity. Dublin was in flames, its citizens were aghast, unsure how to view the rebels as a whole, or how German-sponsored they truly were. The rebels' fight was officially over, but their work, some believed, could have been done for longer. Others insisted that the real result was yet to come, and that in time the British response would crystallise what had just been done in Dublin. In fact, they would prove correct in this, for within this episode the building blocks will be laid for the examination of General John Maxwell's response to what the rebels had done. He had been given plenary powers to act in the name of London as per Ireland's state of martial law. To him, this granted the permission to act as brutally in suppressing the rising as he saw fit. Herein we see the beginnings of ill omens, which suggested the need for a different approach altogether. 
It is a winding tale, I have to admit, which puts our focus back on the smouldering city that had just hosted Ireland's seminal catastrophe. If this sounds like a good time to you, welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents... 1916 A special centenary miniseries exploring the context, characters and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history. The 1916 Rising Fire and death, and the beginning of the end, but we have lost all fears and cares. The noble side of war appeared. The great strength and goodness of Ireland shone vividly before me, and a deep respect and admiration surged up in me for these men and women in this doomed building. I felt we were in for a jolly death. Account of Irish Republican Brotherhood member Desmond Ryan. Mere hours before the evacuation of the GPO by the rebel leadership. Friday the 28th of April 1916. Those of the leaders whom I knew were not great men, nor brilliant, and I believe that in no capacity could they have attained to what is called eminence. But in my definition, they were good men, men, that is, who willed no evil, and whose movements of body and brain were unselfish and healthy. James Stevens, writing on the leaders of the Rising in his work Insurrection in Dublin, 1917. He was a sentimental egotist, full of curious Old Testament theories about being the scapegoat for the people, and he became convinced of the necessity for a periodic blood sacrifice to keep the national spirit alive. There was a certain strain of abnormality in all this. He did not contribute greatly to the hard, grinding work of building up the movement, but as soon as we had succeeded in getting a small organisation and a handful of men, he seized the opportunity to bring about the blood sacrifice. IRB member, Bulmer Hobson, recalling the activities and influence of Patrick Pierce within the IRB. Interview conducted with the Bureau of Military History, 1947. Easter Rising officially ended in a military sense, the moment Patrick Pierce handed his sword over to Brigadier General William Lowe. From that point, in the afternoon of Saturday the 29th of April 1916, it was simply a matter of disseminating the message to the rest of the insurgents that the rebellion was over, and that they had then to surrender. By the end of the week, rebels based in the city centre, particularly near the General Post Office, had reached the limits of their endurance. Most were exhausted, surviving on only fits of sleep, snippets of information and scant rations. The creeping barrage of artillery made it impossible to settle down for rest. 
while the recent patterns of fires which had spread to an inferno by Friday meant the widespread evacuations became necessary in the chaos. In such an atmosphere, it may come as a surprise to note that despite the surrender of Pierce, some units of insurgents across the city continued to hold out in relative ease. Perhaps the most lauded example of this is one of the holdouts in Jacob's Biscuit Factory, directly south of Dublin Castle and about a 20 minute walk south from the GPO. It was here that a contingent of rebels under the command of Thomas McDonough still held out by Saturday morning. Positions like these typically were ones that the British had skirted around rather than engage, but they also pose a challenge to the theory that the Rising had military objectives at its core, since the Biscuit Factory did little to increase the overall security of the rebel positions or serve as an important strategic base. Beforehand it had been viewed as an important source of foodstuffs, but contained, surprisingly enough, little more than biscuits and their ingredients. Irish historian Fergal McGarry's 2010 study, The Easter Rising, noted an amusing anecdote resulting from the seizure of Jacob's Biscuit Factory. The occupation of Jacob's, a biscuit factory, initially proved something of a treat for the younger volunteers. Teenager Vinnie Byrne had a great time eating plenty of cocoa chocolate and biscuits galore. We gorged ourselves, another youth cheerfully recalled. However, after several days of a diet of biscuit ingredients, including unlimited supplies of figs for the company's celebrated fig rolls, most would have given a lot for an ordinary piece of bread, in the words of one of the rebels. One of the few victims of the rising in Jacobs was the young Fenian boy who downed a large cake with such remarkable speed that he was incapacitated by the dire results. He bravely refused to go home. The other garrison that had been separated under the command of Eamon de Valera held on to Boland's Mill, a one-stop location for baked goods, breads, tin supplies and drinkable products like coffee and tea. Though holding the building seemed clever in hindsight, in reality the rebels were hemmed in by sniper fire, having been surrounded by the British only a few days in, with the result that it became nearly impossible to actually distribute the food supplies that they did have to give to the other posts. The Four Courts position, held just a few metres away from the GPO and along the quays, was treated to ten gallons of soup every night, thanks to the provision of the nearby St. John's Convent. Volunteers could occasionally be in possession of food parcels from home, and grocers were normally located within a small distance from each of the rebel positions as well. The real difficulty was not so much that they were far from food, but that travelling along the streets by the end of the week would almost certainly get one killed. By far the worst supplied were the rebels at the South Dublin Union, a group of small buildings under the command of Eamon Kant, which also contained a distillery nearby. This predictably bad combination, low food supplies but plenty of alcohol, did not lead to as many drunken spectacles as one might think. Instead, the rebels were so hungry and desperate by the end of the week that they had to be stopped from eating the roasted malt used to make the whiskey. To solve such a situation, another amusing anecdote occurred where a lookout was posted to signal when food was en route. After a short while, this lookout recalled that I signalled that there were three cattle being driven along Marrowbone Lane towards Cork Street, 
My friend opened the gates and I drove the cattle through them. He closed the gates. In a few moments the owner of the cattle came along and stood in consternation. I asked him what his trouble was and he replied by asking me if I had seen three heifers. I of course assured him that no cattle had passed that way. By the end of the week the rebels at this position had become renowned in the city for becoming effective robbers. Over the course of the week they had commandeered a bread van, two vats of milk, 28 chickens, those three cows you heard about earlier, and a load of cabbage before the rising had ended, all in the name of the insatiable hunger of the men. General Sir John Maxwell did not radically alter the experience of the rising for these men, but he did arrive at a critical point near the end of it, where the British authority was deciding what to do next rather than concerning itself with how to actually defeat the rebels, since the defeat at the end of the week was an inevitability. Maxwell had insisted that he would not hesitate to destroy all buildings within any area occupied by the rebels, adding that nothing short of unconditional surrender would be acceptable. The destruction of the city was a small price to pay, the military maxim went, for the swift suppression of the rising. It was through artillery that victory was best achieved. A frontal attack on the GPO would surely result in the same amount of casualties as had occurred during the disastrous Mount Street Bridge attack on Wednesday. Maxwell was keen to bring the rising to an end as fast as possible, since otherwise the likelihood of simultaneous Irish risings or the appearance of German aid could materialise. A key fact is that, whatever the impact that the war had on brutalising the military response, no such reply to any theoretical British rising would ever have been possible. Imagine the spectacle, for example, of destroying parts of Glasgow or Manchester to put down a rebellion. The fact that such a thing was able to occur in Ireland says a lot about its ambiguous semi-colonial status within the British Empire. By Friday evening, with the roof of the GPO in Inferno and the military end in sight for the rebel leadership, an evacuation of the HQ of the rebels was organised at 8pm. It was a scene later immortalised in a number of paintings, all of which portray similar images, James Connolly on a stretcher, since he had been shot in the ankle, Pierce at a side profile and a number of rebels looking challengingly at the admirer and defiantly at the chaos around them. The chaotic withdrawal and scramble to get the leadership to safety meant that the men's nerves were at a frayed point. With the British in command of most of the choke points along the roads, it required a dexterous and careful traversing of the blind spots that still existed to stay alive. In this atmosphere of panic, a 21-year-old volunteer was appointed Commander General for the simple fact that he knew the area and had been carrying James Connolly on a stretcher. Moore Street was the destination. Nowadays it commonly hosts a food market, but in 1916 it contained the usual site of tenement houses and barricades down its end, populated by British soldiers. To get to the top of Moore Street, the rebels had to exit the Henry Street part of the GPO on its left side, and continue following its direction to the back of the GPO, before making a right turn towards today's Parnell Square. It isn't really important to grasp the geography of Dublin City, which I still struggle with even these days, but what is important to bear in mind is that at this time, the prospect of moving merely the 30 metres or so to the top of Moore Street was made immensely deadly by the nature of the rebels' hemmed-in positions. This was the last of the Republic's forces, and its leadership, amidst the ranks of this desperate group, 
five of the seven signatories of the proclamation could be found amongst the thirty or so men that were trying to escape the GPO. In their number was Patrick Pierce, Joseph Plunkett, James Connolly, Sean McDermott and Tom Clark, all of whom had determined that the GPO was no longer viable as a base, despite its symbolism over the past week. They made their way to the furthest tenement block on Moore Street, under the relative cover of darkness, and some silent boring through the sides of buildings continued, until the remains of the rebels emerged into the residence number 16 on that street. It was suddenly quiet in their building, and as the leaders brainstormed over what to do the next morning at sunrise, so the next morning would be Saturday morning, the 29th of April, other rebels continued to catch up with them. The activity of bursting through walls which housed sleeping or terrified residents brought them closer to the awful reality of what they had done. I felt very sorry for the people who lived in these houses, one volunteer recalled. By going into them we were bringing death and destruction. Mostly we would find we had burst from a hall or landing into a living or bedroom where frightened people were huddled together. One volunteer recalled groping around in the dark of a room after accidentally firing his gun in a fit of nerves. I thought I'd seen the enemy, but then realised it was only a girl, but by then it was too late, he said. As he groped around, he put his fingers into what he thought was the girl's mouth, only to apologise and promise to her that he would fetch aid. It was only when one of his friends arrived to deliver such aid in the morning light that he realised his hands were covered in blood. His fingers had not gone through the girl's mouth, but through a hole in her skull where his bullet had burst through. I felt my whole existence go numb, he recalled. I have never been the same since that. If such casualties and the awful nature of the warfare they were a part of was being brought home by Saturday morning to the rank and file, then the same was true for the leadership. Almost to a man, with the exception of Tom Clark, who wanted to fight to the end, a surrender was agreed. Messages were sent out to locate the commanding officer in the British Army, and eventually... Pierce was called for to deliver the notice in person. His missive read, In order to prevent the further slaughter of Dublin citizens and in the hope of saving the lives of our followers, now surrounded and hopelessly outnumbered, the members of the Provisional Government of the Republic of Ireland, the members of the Provisional Government present at headquarters, have agreed to an unconditional surrender, and the commandants of the various districts in the city and county will order their commands to lay down arms. Later attempts to beef up the rebel positions and subsequent narratives of the Rising made much of this claim that the surrender was being offered to end the bloodshed, but the reality was at the same time that the leaders were surrounded and cut off. They may well have wished to prevent further losses to civilian, volunteer and soldier alike, but they also had a plan for what would follow, and it did not involve an ignominious end. A call had gone up for men to volunteer to rush the barricade at the end of Moore Street, but this was eventually called off once the decision of the leaders was made clear. One rebel recalled his relief when he was able to peer past his position and note the British preparedness for just such an attack on their barricade. The barricade at the Parnell Street end of Moore Street was simply crammed with British soldiers bending over it and Moore standing behind them again and on it were two machine guns. 
Facing upwards was a piece of artillery. Every house in Parnell Street was crammed with British soldiers, and an overflow of some of the troops were lying down on the paths. One volunteer remembered that some in his company refused to accept the official surrender, and that something close to mutiny erupted at the news of it. Though he wanted to fight on, perhaps breaking out and making their way to the Dublin Mountains to continue the fight, it was Sean McDermott who helped him see sense, as the volunteer recalled. He suggested that we take a long look at the dead civilians lying on the streets outside our windows. He asked us to imagine how many more of them would be lying there if we fought on. He also stressed that the civilians near to us were all poor and would likely be butchered with us. He said the rest of this beautiful city would Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. ...would be raised. He said we'd fought a gallant fight, and we'd only lose now by fighting further. He told us that our only remaining duty now was to survive. He ended by insisting quietly and still smiling that we who will be shot will die happily, knowing that there are plenty of others like you around who will finish the job. This fatalistic but in retrospect prophetic statement on the part of MacDermott revealed an already present ambition and expectation of what was to come for those leaders that had surrendered. The rising had yet to end until the next day for many across the city though, as individuals in Jacob's and Boland's mill felt doubly sore at the news, having seen little action in comparison to their central Dublin counterparts. Many found it difficult to even part with their rifles as per the surrender terms, considering the weapon shortage and difficulty of gaining ammunition. This isn't actually that surprising. One rebel recalled that, Men who were passing aimlessly back and forward and gazing lovingly at their rifles took one up now and then to have the last feel of it, as it were, which seemed to make the policemen more nervous. Others handed over arms when they were assured it would be dishonourable to destroy them, which some had wanted to do. 
The allusion to honour in a personal sense was reflected in the desire to fight on to the end in some cases, but it also manifested itself in the appeal to think of the possible civilian casualties that would result from further resistance. Some surrendered purely on the grounds they claimed that they wanted to protect the citizens of Dublin from a continued British backlash. Others refused to believe that a surrender had been had at all. The lack of attempts to escape suggests further personal feelings of honour as well as military honour were present. We talked in the last episode about trench tactics, as I called them, which were themselves a copy of the kind of military strategy used on the Western Front. The strategy was not the only aspect of the Western Front that the rebels copied, though. We have uncovered in previous episodes how many insurgents felt compelled to demonstrate their own military discipline and organisation. This was shown among the volunteers as well by having military-style rank and files, as well as proper military drills and terminology. They, as well as their brethren in the IRB, had modelled their previous manoeuvres on military equivalents, and above all seemed to have wanted to be taken seriously by both the British soldiers come to arrest them, and by the crowds that now showered them with abuse. This desire to be taken seriously, to be seen as a true army, meant that strict discipline was observed by the volunteers upon the surrender. One volunteer recalled that Eamon Kant's behaviour in particular exemplified the kind of soldierly-like conduct that all should display. He said, Kant and General Lowe marched at the head of the army. Eamon Kant looked great. He had his shirt thrown open, his tunic thrown open, and was swinging along at the head of his men. He looked like a real soldier. I heard a British sergeant say to another, That's an officer, and those fellows know their stuff. Disciplined and dignified, that was how the rebels wanted to be seen and remembered, as they had fought for Ireland's honour against all odds and made a proper account of themselves. When it came time to give the weapons over in the form of tossing them into the pile under strict guard all the way, the rebels continued to show their true colours. Thomas Macdonough, one rebel claimed, came to the surrendering place as coolly as if he were going for a stroll on a summer evening. While another claimed that the men held themselves erect and upright at all times, looking absolutely defiant. Here, Fergal McGarry claims that in terms of its impact on public opinion, the rebels' manly acceptance of defeat and punishment, carefully choreographed by their leaders, exerted a greater emotional charge than the six days of scrappy fighting that preceded it. Already, as McGarry continued to note, their power to draw on and engender the sympathy of the public was vastly greater as noble victims of British justice than as fanatics who perpetrated a violent cause. This observation soon became a theme, because almost as soon as the surrender rang out at half three on Saturday the 29th of April 1916, observers, commentators and the media were claiming that the rebels' fight had been clean, their behaviour honourable, and their bravery commendable. Owing to the size of Dublin, it was possible for some of the rebels to know their arresting officers. One rebel, a legal clerk, knew his arresting officer because he was a Dublin barrister himself. Our relations were friendly and courteous, he said. Some were friendly, some were hostile, but most British soldiers were professional as a rule. Generally speaking, the Tommy was not a bad fellow, one rebel recalled, even if at times his language was not all that could be desired. 
This tied into one account later remembered by a rebel who was marched from his point of surrender at Jacobs and accompanied by a rather vocal British critic. The soldier on my right was a rather beefy red-faced sergeant and his indignation at our preposterous attack on the Empire knew no bounds. Almost the whole way along he cursed us fervently and went into all the gory details of what he would like to do to us if he had had his own way. Here I am, said he, having come safely through two blankety years in the blankety trenches in France, come here for a blankety rest, and then run the chances of getting a blankety bullet from a lot of blank blank blanks like you, and so on, and so on ad nauseum. I could understand how he felt even then. The British treatment of the rebels over the following days is also rife with conflicting personal accounts. Some recorded that the British officers on guard treated them with respect, Others remembered that some soldiers, especially the ones that were held prisoner by the rebels beforehand, pursued certain rebels after the surrender with a vendetta. Some of the rebels were attacked, robbed, threatened with murder, actually murdered or left for dead after beating. But there were other cases of Irish-born officers letting younger rebels that they recognised go, or with some British officers protecting the rebels that marched off into captivity from the so-called separation women and the separation women were later a source of ridicule as well for many nationalist historians of the period. But at the time, to the British officers, they served as an amusing, if curious, spectacle. One rebel recalled, The cheering and waving of hats and Union Jacks for the Staffordshire Regiment as they marched us into Richmond Barracks, the cries of encouragement to shoot the traitors or bane at the scoundrels, seemed to be just incredible and part of one bad dream. Were the British army to have withdrawn at that moment, there would have been no need for court-martials or prisons, as the mob would have relieved them of such necessities. We have encountered these women before, the separation women. They were individuals who had become dependent on the provisions given by the British state in exchange for the military service of their husbands. This explained the testimonies of those at the time who claimed that the poorest were the most hostile, with the richest right behind them in hostility. The poor relied so completely on the monies that the rebels' actions threatened, while the rich were most likely from the landed or Anglo-Irish classes that more wholeheartedly supported the British war effort than any other class. That said, a number of defiantly loud women did cheer from the sidelines as the rebels passed by. While other officers of Irish origin lambasted the rebels for acting too soon, or for jeopardising the good work that J.E. Redmond was doing, J.E. Redmond, of course, referring to the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, John Redmond, and his work to make Home Rule a reality before 1916, which had been achieved legally but then postponed owing to the war. Cumann Aban ensured that an unignorable column of female prisoners was also visible, a spectacle which both unnerved and shocked many previously unaware onlookers, as well as the officers that escorted them. In the aftermath of the Rising, in which many played a significant role, but in most cases were not as significant as they would have liked, their preparation for prison or a worse fate was also expected with a degree of defiance. When being questioned, British officers more often than not released the younger women who they had no desire to hold. Some who had travelled from Liverpool were famously given the fare to return home. Others were told to claim that they had only been offering aid to the rebels, or that they had been fooled or forced into acting. 
These explanations, of course, fit into the kind of view of women at the time, that they could be fooled, that they couldn't think or act by themselves. In a United Kingdom where women did not have the vote despite years of active campaigning, it is perhaps not surprising that the female element of the rising in Britain's other island was hushed up as much as possible. Though women were mostly exposed after this period to woefully inadequate holding facilities while the government decided what to do with them, this, much like their male counterparts' experiences, had as much to do with wanting to punish them as it did with the utter unpreparedness of the Anglo-Irish establishment to be able to deal with the aftermath of such a revolt. Ultimately, only five women would join the male internees in Britain, and all were shipped out of the country by the middle of May, a spectacle which at least delighted the tactful as always General John Maxwell, who was happy to be rid of all those silly little girls. Sexism aside, a grim fate awaited those that could be identified as the VIPs of the Rising. While eventually ending up in Richmond Barracks, about a half hour's walk west of the GPO in Dublin City, the real question for the British establishment was how to treat the rebels. Incidentally, General Maxwell had long since answered that question already. Unfortunately for the British government and the future of Irish history, it was he, thanks to the state of martial law and the disorganised and chaotic way that the British response progressed, who possessed the plenary powers to act in the name of the British state. It was he, in the end, who possessed the power over life and death of rebels as military governor. He did not wait long to arrive at his decision. In Richmond Barracks, in contrast to Maxwell's coming judgement, the rebel leaders were largely positive about what they had just done and been through. Tom Clark referred to a minimum loss which will result in a maximum gain, while Sean McDermott claimed that the only failure in Ireland is the failure to strike. We hoped to push the ball up the hill high enough for others to push it the whole way, after our example. Joseph Plunkett claimed that we had now started a new advance. When one rebel made a cynical remark to one of his compatriots, The recorded reply was, If they let you live six months, you will see the reaction. The aim of the Rising seemed to have been to inspire Irish people, to awaken their desire for independence, rather than achieve military success. This was a fact that the leaders of it knew and had accepted, and may take their debts to fully succeed, but dying would be the best means to lead by such a valiant example. The process of inspiration thus did not end with the act of the Rising itself. The second phase of the Rising would come from the critical role that the British would play. What they decided to do would change everything. Some volunteers, members of the Irish Citizens Army, of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and of Cumann had theorised at the beginning of the Rising about its success. Those out of the loop largely expected success, They believed that their leaders would not lead them on a hopeless cause without a chance of victory. There would be no point in such an exercise. Now, when they had reached the end of the doomed rising, they theorised about the British response. Even with the less morbid predictions, an expectation emerged that through their acting and endurance of whatever punishment the British assigned, they would inspire the population of Ireland to rise, as they already had. It was a creeping expectation, but the prisoners were not without their warriors. Some feared the prospect of being shipped to France and used as labourers to dig trenches. 
A less savoury and more ignominious end I cannot think of. We must remain in our home nation for the efforts to be the strongest. A belief also persisted that by existing as prisoners, they could inspire citizens to believe in their cause. The experience of mass incarceration was an important building block for many a rebel in their personal development. Being a prisoner of the British reinforced their beliefs, cemented bonds between comrades, and would later see them welcomed home as heroes, on which they could launch many a political career. It was the prisoner rather than the martyr, then, which initially seemed to possess such an important role in crystallising an anti-British sentiment and shifting the blame from rebel to crown. General Maxwell's other, more often forgotten order alongside the executions of the rebels was to direct the arrest of over 3,500 people across the country under a blanket policy of mass incarceration. Of these 3,500, 2,500 were sent to internment camps in Britain over the following weeks. These individuals were arrested on very little evidence and allowed to exercise little or no rights. Very few had been involved in the Rising at all, and most were simply guilty of belonging to a group of some kind like the Gaelic League or Sinn Féin. Though the leaders of the Rising were relatively well known, those that had supported this minority clearly had not been. After a few days, Dublin Castle pinged out a warning to not confuse the strong nationalists with the guilty Sinn Féiners, a phrase which blatantly demonstrated that they hadn't done their homework either. A genuine, actual Sinn Féiner, more likely than not, would have taken no part in the Rising, owing to the fact that Sinn Féin was a peaceful political movement rather than the catch-all Republican term it had become. Thousands that were arrested were then released once they had travelled the length of the country to reach Dublin. This prompted further demanding memos insisting that only those possessing a real danger to Arden's peace or a desire to commit further bloodshed should be arrested. Britain's response, claimed the historian Fergal McGarry, combined a provocative heavy-handedness with a counterproductive ineffectiveness. The spectacle of seeing so many individuals wrongly arrested contributed to the perception that the British would always treat Ireland unfairly during wartime, and that her foreign rule and lack of love for the Irish people was a manifestation of the fact that she should not rule her Gaelic neighbour at all. This was a growing perception, born out of the understandable frustration experienced by many in the weeks after the Rising, but the bumbling of the arrests alone would have not led to such a 180 turn in public opinion had the British reaction stopped there. Instead, John Maxwell had already begun the process and established the curious justification for taking the most important leaders of the rebellion and hurriedly court-martialing them with the aim of delivering rapid death sentences. 171 of those arrested, including the surrendered rebels, were deemed the worst offenders and were in need of a trial to determine punishment. Field General Court-Martial was to be the mode of determining guilt going forward. This would have been a similar court used to try those who had disobeyed orders or deserted during the war and had been tried, like, effectively nearby the battlefield in a hurry. A telling fact was that London seemed content, at least for the moment, to treat the Rising as an extension of the war. Legal niceties were deemed unnecessary in the circumstances of martial law, and with the invocation of the Defence of the Realm Act, otherwise known as DORA. 
Dora stipulated that no person shall, by word of mouth or in writing, spread reports likely to cause disaffection or alarm among any of His Majesty's forces or among the civilian population. It had been passed on the 8th of August, 1914, and was obviously designed to bypass the inconvenient machinery of democracy during the emergency of world war. It enabled censorship, basically, and it gave the government greater powers to arrest and hold subjects to commandeer vehicles, buildings and resources. It also made it a punishable offence to communicate with the enemy in any meaningful way, to spread reports that could damage the war effort, or basically hinder the war effort in any way. In other words, it was a sweeping document, designed to give the British sweeping powers in its time of trial. But it was not anticipated at the time that it would be used against Irish rebels. This was because any rebellion required the premise of a trial. The alternative, after all, was to simply hurriedly try the rebels without due process. This might have been a solution if one or two of the cases were passed through the field general courts. But with the aforementioned number of 171 individual cases blacklisted for offences, how could the machinery of the British Empire cope with such a number of cases without appearing barbaric or overly harsh? To John Maxwell, the answer was simple. He was not merely alluding to Dora when he acted with plenary powers. He was also acting with the authority of military governor in an atmosphere of martial law. This made these circumstances exceptional, and exceptional circumstances called for an exceptional system of judgment to assess and thereafter punish the guilt of those involved. Such was the situation which held the likes of Patrick Pierce, Tom Clark, and James Connolly at its mercy, and thus held the future of Ireland in its grasp. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. 